0: much for uh, joining us. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you remember the emotional swings of taking a sick day from school when you were a kid? Let me refresh your memory. You wake up and you're feeling really physically crummy and that's a bad thing. And then your mom says you can stay home from school that day and that's a good thing. And then everyone leaves the house and you're all alone and that's a good thing. And then you turn on the TV and there's nothing but soap operas and that's a bad thing. You're thinking, man, even school would be better than this. But then, right before lunchtime, Monday through Friday, for the last 50 years, what happens? There's a sea in the oasis. There's an oasis in the sea of soap operas. The Price is Right game show comes on. Right? It's like the only thing that a kid would want to watch during daytime TV. And uh, I just want to ask if you guys have ever spent a lazy or a sick morning watching the Price is Right game show. There's a couple things that just make it the perfect activity for a sick day at home. First of all, if you're just sitting there in your pajamas or your sweatpants, uh, you're dressed just about the same as everybody in the crowd, okay? It's not a crowd of fancy people. And uh, you're not feeling well, but they've just got so much excitement and enthusiasm, it kind of drives you, gives you a little bit of energy. Uh, But the best thing about the Price is Right is if you ever want to get a question right watching Jeopardy! Like, you're gonna have to have college level knowledge of that topic, right? If uh, you wanna solve the puzzle in Price is Right, you have to know how to spell and you have to know proper grammar. But to get the prize on the Price is Right, all you have to know is if soup costs more or less than $10, right? And if you live in Big Sky, the answer is more. (laughs) So, I have many uh, influenza-filled mornings of happy memories watching The Price is Right, and that's why a few months back when I was flipping through uh, browsing on Netflix, I was so fascinated when I came across this documentary called The Perfect Bid. Have any of you guys seen The Perfect Bid? All right, it turns out that there's this guy named Ted Slauson, he's a math teacher, But what's really special about Ted Slauson is that he just loves The Price is Right a little bit more than probably anybody should love a game show. He claims that he's watched every single episode in his childhood, in college, and even now he tapes every episode and watches it when he gets home from work. Now, somewhere along the way, this guy Ted Slauson realized that all the prize packages, you know, you can win the RV, the moped, the trip to Switzerland. Somewhere along the way, Ted realized that all of these prizes are given to the studio as promotion for promotional awareness, and then they're just put in a warehouse and they're reused on later episodes. So he started recording the prices for every single prize and the history of the price is right, and he did it. He memorized them, he knows. To the decimal point, what every single prize package is is worth. And this is where it gets so interesting. Sometimes he goes to the tapings, and he sits in the audience, and he shouts out the exact amount that that prize package is worth. And my question for you is, why, why doesn't everybody take his advice? If this guy knows the exact price of every single package that you can win on the show... Why doesn't everybody take his advice and the answer is why? Because everyone in the audience is shouting out an answer as well. Uh, For the rest of the summer, we're going to start a sermon series called How Jesus Talks About Jesus. We're going to get the teaching right from Jesus on how to be a disciple, how to be a follower in his kingdom. And my question is this, why doesn't everybody do what he says? Because there's a lot of other voices shouting out contrary information as well. The correct answer is there, but it's in a sea of wrong answers. So it turns out that Price is Right is kind of offering us a metaphor for discipleship and Christian growth. Success is easy, provided you're listening to the right voice. Uh, This afternoon, uh, if you you haven't already, please open up to Matthew 13. And as we do, uh, Jesus tells a clear story about the attitude that's needed for the level of discipleship or the level of following Him that He is asking for. In the next 20 minutes, Jesus is going to make some pretty clear claims, some pretty interesting teachings for us. And here's the question that I want you guys to decide right now. Whose voice are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the voice of Jesus? Or are you going to listen to your favorite quote on spirituality from Ellen or Oprah or whatever other voice is out there in the audience of voices telling us how to be spiritual and how to grow and how to be more holy? Our outline this afternoon will be as follows, really simple, two quick points. In section one, we're going to just familiarize ourselves with these two very simple stories that Jesus tells, and then in section two, we're going to ask and answer the question of what Jesus is teaching us about seeking and finding and experiencing the deeper life in God that each one of us ultimately desires. So let's get started, section one, and let's just talk a little bit about uh, uh, these quick parables that Jesus is telling. The first one, I'm sure you've heard in Sunday school or sometime in the past. It's often called the treasure hidden in the field. And uh, it's a a one-sentence story, a one-verse story. And in Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says this, "...the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, and when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought that field." You guys might be asking yourself, like, this is kind of an interesting or a silly story. Like, is this the time of pirates? Since when did people hide treasures in fields, especially in Bible times? And there's actually a really interesting explanation for this. You know, Palestine, Israel, it's a war-torn area. It's occupied all the way throughout the history of the Bible, off and on, and in a time when there wasn't banks and in a time when there wasn't lockboxes, what would you do to protect your valuables? like your family heirlooms, your silver candlesticks, and those things of great value. Well, you would go and you would bury them in the field so that nobody else would steal them from your house. There's, again, no banks to put them in. And then what would happen if you died? What would happen if uh, the Romans did come in, like in the time of Jesus and occupy uh, Israel? your, your, your uh, valuables would be hidden in the field. So uh, I just want to point out that sometimes when we hear these parables and sometimes when we hear these stories in the Bible, they seem abstract, but I promise you that the original audience would have been listening along. And maybe they would have thought about that family heirloom that they had buried in their field uh, or something similarly. Jesus then goes on and he tells another story that's a parallel story. It's very similar. Listen to what it says in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. And uh, we know that uh, pearls were uh, very valuable in Bible times, just like they're valuable today. Uh, The Persian Gulf, uh, the area around where the Bible takes place, uh, is most famous for being the region where the most uh, expensive pearls are found. Uh, For those of you that don't quite know what goes into making a pearl valuable, there's actually six categories. Shape, size, color, surface, luster and density. And uh, based on those six criteria, this pearl could be of great value or it could be of moderate value. These days, pearls are actually made in like aquatic laboratories because you can just inject something inside the clam and it will make I guess a synthetic pearl, uh, but those natural pearls that are found in the bottom of the ocean are the most valuable. Today, pearls can be valued between 300 and 1,500 dollars a pearl. Uh, but about 10 years ago, a Filipino fisherman uh, dragged up a huge clam, opened it upside, uh, opened it up, and there was actually um, a 75-pound pearl. valued at 100 million dollars which he actually took home and put under his bed. All right. So uh, incredibly valuable pearls can still hit the market. Uh, that one was of a great size, but in our story today, this merchant sees this pearl that's just so perfectly balanced between those other six qualities that he immediately recognizes that it has a value that surpasses any of the other pearls that he's ever come across. So now that we've kind of refamiliarized ourselves with those two very quick stories that Jesus tells, we have to ask ourselves the question, why are those two stories put together? Is there anything that those stories have in common that we can establish? to kind of move towards the meaning and the teaching that Jesus is offering us from these stories. I think there's four things that these two stories have in common. Let's, let's uh, come up with those very quickly. The first one is this. Both stories involve something of great worth that's overlooked by most. This guy finds a treasure in the field, but it's a field that's just right in town. Everybody else walks by that field Nobody else thinks there's anything special about that field. And then uh, the merchant who finds this pearl of great value, it's in a pearl market. There's other pearls around. Other people have walked down that aisle or looked at that display and seen that same pearl as well. So in both stories, we see that it involves something of great worth, but it's also something of great worth that's overlooked by many others. Another thing that these two parables have in common is that both require a substantial investment to acquire. Like that guy in the field, he has to go home and sell everything he owns to go buy the field. That merchant, we're told, had to go home and sell everything that he had in order to buy that pearl. So both stories show us that Jesus is talking about something that requires a substantial investment to acquire. It's not just something that anybody can get cheaply. Another thing that both of these parables have in common is that the main characters are... Uh, they both experience transformational thinking. That guy who goes into the field, his values are transformed. He's willing to sell everything that he has because he now sees the value of things differently. That pearl merchant sold everything that he had to get this beautiful pearl. So both protagonists, both main characters, there's something that Jesus is telling us about how our, 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 our thinking is supposed to be transformed. And finally, both of these parables are bookended by two other parables. Uh, one is the, the, the parable of the weeds explained and the other is the parable of the net. And in both of these parables that are kind of bookended around the two that we're studying today, the takeaway is that God judges those, are of, those who are of his kingdom and those who are not of his kingdom. So as Jesus is telling us this story about what it's like to enter into his kingdom, Before and after are these kind of sobering stories that not everybody meets the criteria. And a lot of us in this day and age hear a story that God doesn't let everybody experience eternity with Him. God doesn't let everybody in the garden and everybody in the net make the cut and pass the criteria. And there's a voice in our head that says, No, not in this church, not in this moment. All paths lead to God, right? Like with that bumper sticker that has all the religious symbols right next to each other. But I just want to challenge you guys. Whose voice are you listening to? Are you listening to the voice of the moment that we're living in, which changes year to year, moment to moment? Or are you listening to the voice of Jesus who's saying, there's some sort of attribute about following Him that He's asking us to have that not everybody else has? So on that note, let's transition to section two and let's really try to get to the bottom of what Jesus is teaching about the deeper life in God. Nobody wants a boring faith. Nobody wants an unstimulating experience in church. We all want something better. We all want something dynamic. And Jesus is giving us some incredible guidance on how we can have that experience that we all long to have. Before we get to those three points that Jesus is teaching us about a deeper life in God through uh, these parables, uh, he, he uses this unique phrase, the kingdom of heaven, If you guys kind of look in your text there in Matthew thirteen forty four, he starts off the parables that we're studying today by saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. And he gives us two stories that teach us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so the question that is in my mind is, what is Jesus specifically talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven? Uh, this is a phrase that occurs, interestingly enough, 32 times in the book of Matthew and nowhere else in the New Testament. Most of the Gospels use the phrase, the kingdom of God. But here, 32 times in the book of Matthew, it uses, Jesus uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. One of my favorite Christian writers is a, a man named Dallas Willard. And he has two or three chapters in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, trying to answer this question of what Jesus means when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And his summary is this. In summary, then, the disciple or apprentice of Jesus, recognized in the New Testament, is the one who's firmly decided to learn from Jesus and to lead his or her life as Jesus himself would do it. And as best they know, they're making plans and they're taking the necessary steps, arranging and rearranging their affairs to do this. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is this idea that Jesus is saying is the life that's available to us even here on this earth. We can start to learn things and experience things that will carry over into our experience with God in heaven for all of eternity, but some of that relationship... Is even available to us now here on this earth. And that's what Jesus is teaching in the book of Matthew that we can experience the kingdom of heaven. We can start out to live, we can start to live out some of our kingdom experience even here on this earth. And so I believe that it's in that context that Jesus is telling us if you're interested in that, if you want to start living out this deeply rich experience with God even now on this earth. Here's three things to think about as you make that your goal. Three lessons on kingdom living available to us in the here and the now. The first one is this. I hope this kind of is clear to you as it's clear to me as I ponder over those parables. I think these parables are an opportunity for Jesus to tell us, don't let others establish your value of kingdom living. Okay. Don't let others establish your value of kingdom living. Keep in mind, everybody in the town walked by that field. Most of the people in that town walked through that little uh, uh, um, uh, town market where the, the pearls were for sale without recognizing the great value of that one particular pearl. In other words, it is possible for you to have an incredible excitement about what God wants to do in your life and you might not have a spouse that shares that excitement. You might have a sibling that tells you that you're a fool. Uh, you might have people in your life that tell you to put away your Bible and start talking that, stop talking that way because they're just not interested in that thing that you're super enthusiastic about. Don't let others establish your value of kingdom living. The characters in these stories are so excited, they found something of great worth. But it's a treasure in a field that everybody else has disregarded. It's a pearl uh, in a store that everybody else has walked by without recognizing its incredible beauty. Uh, yesterday, I was lucky enough to have some friends from college. They were uh, in their RV visiting Yellowstone, and so they stopped by uh, to spend a little bit of time with my family and myself. And it was so good to see some old college friends. And uh, we were actually uh, really close, uh, my friend Zach and his wife Teresa, by doing college ministry together. And I still just have these incredible, like, we still have this bond from these memories from 20 years ago. Do you guys have any friends that you still have an incredibly deep relationship with, even though it's primarily based on experiences from the past, and so uh, I was just thinking and having all these memories from this ministry that we did together in college, and I went to a secular university. It was a small university in Wisconsin of about 10,000 students, a very public university, and every Thursday night, we would take Zach's Nissan Pulsar, which is smaller than any car that you're picturing. We would load it up with band equipment, you know, all these amplifiers and, and microphones and a soundboard, and we'd go to this uh, classroom that was right kind of on the edge of, cla- of uh, campus. And we'd spend about an hour setting up everything for this meeting, and then students would give their testimonies, and there would be singing, and there would be this kind of connection that all these Christian students or people that were pursuing Christ would experience together, and it was just such a beautiful, and rich time, and usually it would be hot and overheated in that room, and so the front doors would be propped open. And as 70 or 80 students who either knew Christ or were pursuing Christ, were just having this incredibly rich time of fellowship that I still think about uh, favorably 20 years later, what was happening outside those propped open doors? About a thousand students were walking from the dorms to the bars looking for something that I don't think many of them found. If you were just going by the numbers, why would you possibly spend your Thursday night in that room with 50 or 60 other people who were seeking Christ when the multitudes, when the thousands, were headed to the other part of town? I think when Jesus tells us the parable of the treasure in the field and the parable of the pearl of great price, he wants you to be encouraged to not let others establish your value of kingdom living maybe you're fired up for the lord maybe you know that god has good things for you and your relationship with him in the future there's going to be people in your life that don't share that enthusiasm don't let others establish or bring down your value of kingdom living first corinthians 1 says this for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. If you have a spark in you right now that says, I want to hear more about kingdom living. I want to start experiencing these things that Jesus says are available. Don't let others bring down or establish your value of that kingdom living. The second thing that I think Jesus is trying to encourage us with from these parables is this, even though it doesn't sound super encouraging. Kingdom living costs all that you have. Kingdom living will cost all that you have. Both the man in the field and the pearl merchant, what did they have to do to get the treasure? What did they have to do to get the pearl? It tells us in both instances they had to go and they had to sell everything that they had. As I've been thinking about these parables this week, I've been thinking about two primary things. The first is how wonderful it is to live for God to live for the kingdom of God, to have this relationship with Jesus that he's saying is available in these two quick parables. And you just think about the joy that these characters have. Like, they're not counting the cost. They gladly uh, spend everything they have to buy the field. They gladly spend everything they have to buy the pearl. But kingdom living costs all that you have. And so I've been trying to think of some times in my past where I could maybe explain or illustrate what that means, that kingdom living comes at a great cost. And um, one verse that popped into my mind was uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Let me refresh your memory with that. It says this. It's talking to Christians. It says, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And uh, one example that came into my mind was uh, uh, right as I finished up college, Uh, and I met my wife. We weren't married yet. We were just uh, engaged. And I was living with five smelly guys that could barely pay their rent. And the thought came into my mind, I would rather live with my fiancé. I would rather live with my fiancé right now than these smelly guys who don't pay their bills and eat all my cereal and don't wash their dishes. Right? Like, my urges and my impulses and my way of thinking was that this is what would be best for me. And then I remember 1 Corinthians 16, 19, and 20 that says, for somebody in the kingdom, you are not yours. You were bought with a price. My life was no longer just whatever I felt like was best or easiest for me. I was now living for a kingdom with different rules and different regulations. But that came at a cost. It didn't, it didn't allow me to have what I most wanted in that season of my life if I wanted to be faithful to what the kingdom was teaching. Well, when you're dating somebody or when you're engaged, it kind of feels like the whole world is against you, right? But then you get married and it feels like the great tension of the world is you against your spouse sometimes, right? (laughs) Sometimes there's a cost of kingdom living when you're married. in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, there's this beautiful passage about the, the beauty and the call for Christians in marriage for mutual submission. And what it's talking about there in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, is that marriage offers the world a picture of the gospel. Uh, in other words, and, and it explains the analogy quite clearly, Jesus Christ's bride is the church. And the church is full of sinners. And the church is full of people that make mistakes. And Jesus Christ took on the sin and the weakness of the church so that it could be propped up and so that it could be beautiful and that so it could be successful. It came at a cost to him. It came at a great cost to Christ. And then Paul in that passage says, now this is what your marriages should look like, full of mutual submission, each spouse holding up their spouse in spite of their sin and self-defeating behaviors. Have you guys ever heard that phrase, I married up? People love to say, I married up. In other words, like, I married a person way better than me that's elevated me to a a better station in life. And I think the truth is that there's seasons in life when we marry up, and I think the truth is that there's seasons in life when the self-defeating behaviors and the hardships and the scars of our spouse bring us down, and I think that's true in every marriage the world tells us that if your spouse is bringing you down and holding you back and you could earn more or you could experience better things or you could live freer then just get divorced and just move on i think the cost of kingdom i think the cost of kingdom living in marriage is that you're committed to mutual submission you are going to hold up your spouse in their low points just like they're absolutely gonna lift up you in your low points. And so I think that if we're real here, there's times where it's absolutely beneficial to be be married, and there's times when a believer is burdened in marriage. But just like their spouse has lifted them up, they're gonna stick it through, and they're gonna, for richer or for poorer, sickness and in health, carry their spouse through a low season as well. That's the cost of kingdom living and marriage. There's an incredible payoff. It's always worth it, but it comes at a cost. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Kingdom living costs all you have. Here's one more thing that I was thinking about this week. How about in parenting? Does following Christ come at a cost as a parent? That's something that we don't always think about, and it's something that we don't always talk about. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this. It's not specifically talking about Christian parenting, but it is talking about what God's goal for us is on this earth. He says, uh, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Uh, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. In other words, this passage is telling us that God's goal for us is is to sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us more like God. But that's not always our main goal in parenting. Sometimes our main goal as parents is to raise little trophies, to raise little achievers that are going to be just as good as, at us at our best things or even surpass the levels of achievement that we never accomplished in our own lives. And that might have come across a little bit harsher than I wanted it to sound. We want good things for our kids. We want the best things for our kids. But sometimes in His sovereignty, God allows things to happen to our kids that aren't the best for their achievement, that aren't the best for their health, that aren't the best for the future that we would have chosen for our kids. And so, the cost of kingdom living and parenting is that we have to yield to God and we have to say, God, I know that what you want is for my kids to become holy, even if that's different than the vision that I had for them. You're allowing them to be sick, you're allowing them to fail, you're allowing them to get bullied. That's not what I would choose for my kid. But God, you want my kids to be holy, whereas many times I just want them to be successful. And so the cost of kingdom living and parenting is that we yield to God's desires for our children, even when that requires a path differently than we would have chosen for our kids that we love so much. So number one, I think Jesus is trying to encourage us through these parables not to let others drag down your value of this kingdom living. Number two, kingdom living costs all that you have. It costs you in your identity. It costs you in marriage. And it costs you in parenting and a lot of other things that we could talk about if time permitted. Number three is this. Kingdom living is joyfully worth the price that it costs. If number two is that it costs you all that you have, number three, good news, it's joyfully worth everything that it costs. In Matthew 13, when it talks about this man who was going to go and sell everything that he had to buy this field with the treasure in it, it uses this phrase, and then in his joy. He went to sell that field in his joy because he knew that even though it was going to cost him everything that it had, he was also going to get a lot more out of it than he was investing. That's the joy of kingdom living. It makes certain junctures of our development and our marriage and our parenting more difficult than it would be if we were just free to follow our own selfish wisdom. But of course, it's worth the cost. It's joyfully worth the price that it costs. Let me start to wrap up with this. I wrote down this statement. It's certainly true for me. Kingdom living has cost me a lot. Kingdom living has cost me nothing that is better than kingdom living. Okay, It costs a lot, but nothing that's not worth it. In just a minute, the worship team's going to come forward and uh, start to wrap up our service. Let me close with this beautiful quote from Tim Keller when he preached this same passage. He says, Anybody who says, I don't want to give up $10,000 for a billion dollars is not counting the billion dollars. Anybody who will not give himself or herself up utterly to Christ has not realized that he gave himself up utterly for you Anyone who's not willing to give Christ everything doesn't realize all that he's given us. Spiritual treasure is always hidden in a field of ordinariness. If you have it, it will transform you completely. If you say, Boy, that hasn't happened for me yet, keep digging. It's kind of a tricky thing to talk for 25 minutes about two sentences, right? Don't want to get off track. Don't want to talk about things that Jesus didn't intend. I think that we can all think about these brief stories and we can all be encouraged. Jesus is speaking to us in an audience full of voices. We need to learn to draw out, those, draw, uh, ignore those other voices and hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that uh, this kingdom living is available for us, it's available for you, and it can start right now. But first, We have to realize that others are not going to see the great value that we've started to see. Don't let that discourage you. We have to realize that it's going to cost more than the world tells you that anything should possibly cost. My politics, my gender identity, my own personal choices, I can't give up those things. Jesus is telling us that kingdom living costs all that we have. Finally, we see that it's joyfully worth everything that it costs us when we, uh, when, when we finally acquire that thing of great value and experience it and uh, all that it has for us. Let's just think about the challenge, the challenges and these two quick stories, and let's think about the incredible blessings that come for those who are faithful to these difficult things that are being asked. Let's think about that as we wrap up with this final song.